From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. It's hard to travel and to speak to anyone in the golf and sports turf industries and not hear about the shortage of good, reliable labor. From entry-level course and ground staff to mid- and upper-level management positions. While this is not new, it's been made worse by the pandemic. I, for one, have thought most of us could use some help with building a workforce. And right on time, I had a chat with Tyler Bloom. My name is Tyler Bloom, principal owner for Tyler Bloom Consulting. My focus and specialization is in workforce development, talent solutions for the turfgrass industry. As we head into the fall, in my opinion, the best season for golf, in some areas it gets a bit easier, others are gearing up for the snowbirds. No matter what, playing conditions are still at the forefront and the plant food company has the products to meet your needs. Nutrient solutions that enhance your playing conditions is what the plant food company is all about. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Tyler, welcome. Glad to have you. Thanks for taking the time. Let's start out by talking about how one gets into this, right? You're new to my listening audience. I haven't had a chance to elaborately interrogate you like I do many people who visit this fine program. So let's start out with how, how does uh, one get into workforce development in the golf business and knowing that you're a former golf course superintendent, right? So you grew grass for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess you could say build out a necessity. Like most superintendents, I was struggling with labor six, seven years ago from entry level all the way up to assistant. And I kind of happened to fall into a relationship with Baltimore County Public Schools in developing apprenticeship programs. You know, most people think of Tyler Bloom and they, they may relate to he built his team off of high school students. But actually what happened was I got engaged with the Department of Labor and a variety of different workforce agencies. So the more I was exposed sort of to their language and their field, I realized workforce development isn't some pseudo term. There's a whole craft and profession behind it. And I just realized there was nothing like this in the golf industry. So I kind of married those two sort of passions, turf, golf, and also staff development and uh, realized that this legitimately could be a consulting search and placement business. And, you know, the more I tested it and got in front of different groups, started getting calls from superintendents, I thought there's no reason I couldn't make this a full-time job. And it was more so just taking the leap of faith, you know, understand there's going to be some ups and downs and might take some time to get clarity on exactly what services I provide. But, you know, as a whole, looking back, it was the best decision I ever made. It was actually perfect timing with COVID. Yeah. So let me ask you about other industries that have some workforce development that's been successful. It is a fascinating component to workforce development and and certainly ag education that I'm associated with here at Cornell. We train a lot of young people that go on and teach VOAG and ag programs, ag science, biological science programs at high schools. So I, I wonder, do you mean like ag's doing it pretty good and we could do it better or finance is doing it pretty good and we could do it better? What other industries do you look at and say, wow, this is really working good for them. I think it'll work for us. Yeah, I think, you know, traditionally you've got the manufacturer type trades, electricians, plumbers, you know, things that people associate with trades, but really kind of over the last five to 10 years, I think you are starting to see finance and tech, pharmaceuticals, health sciences are starting to engage in in workforce development and and they're having success. I mean, literally, they're building their entire teams off of this apprenticeship type model 
on-the-job training programs, things like the first green outreach program. It'd be a little bit different in their field, but similar concepts. Okay. Uh, trying to attract people and develop them from a, from a young age. Right. Okay, so certainly the trades, I know well enough that my two favorite people in my small town are the plumber and the electrician because uh, <laughs> they simply aren't making enough of those well-talented people. And I think, Tyler, this is an interesting conversation because I think people look their nose down a little bit at manual work and, and labor. And I don't want to say people don't want to work. I just feel like the kind of work that, I used to enjoy doing as a kid is looked on like, well, why would you do that when you could do this? So first off, you know, there is this component of the challenge we face in doing this kind of work, getting up early and and putting up with these things. But at the same time, you know, when you're an electrician or you're a plumber, you know, you know, eventually you're going to get with a big company, make a living, you're going to have your own shingle and, you know, you, you, you run your own business and you become successful in that route. We certainly need people just to do the workforce work, and we certainly need people to do in the assistant ranks, but we see that we're also having the problem up at the top. How does workforce development work when you really looks like there's maybe a wall? So on the individual level, you know, let's take an example of a club um, that has skill gaps, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're really trying to bridge where those gaps are. And like you said, it could be from the entry level to the management level, um, or it also could be from that assistant manager to more of a leadership department head. So, you know, you're really utilizing local resources, whether that be an educational partner like a university, community college, trade school, to offer some of that educational support. You're looking for different agencies and support groups like a Veterans Affairs, could be occupational rehab, could be a high school you know, agencies that focus on specific demographics to engage them into the workforce, right? Yeah. And so therein lies the issue too, right? You know, the workforce isn't going to look maybe in the future what it looks like today in some places. I Agreed. I don't know, but it seems like one of the things you're saying is there's uh, maybe a little bit need for diversity and reaching into maybe underrepresented minority groups and things like that. Uh, certainly, we have minority groups managing golf courses across this country. Are we talking about moving some of these groups from workforce into management? I would think that's the end goal, right? Right. Yeah. I think you've got to start at the foundational level, but I, I certainly see that happening. And, you know, one thing I learned here this year after doing, you know, as much recruiting and placement as I have for general labor, it isn't always necessarily a change of ethnicity or color. It's a change in mindset and the qualities and the characteristics of the people. So we've had a lot of individuals that have come into this, let's call it apprenticeship type model that might have been in finance or they might have been in those careers that you spoke about or more, I guess, from the vantage point, they look like they're sexier jobs, mm-hmm. right? They're higher paying, yeah. but they don't like those jobs. They actually, these people just never knew that golf clubs or turf grass careers actually could be pretty lucrative and they're sustainable. So sometimes it's actually the same ethnicity and the same color. It's just a different person. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. certainly does. And so let me just expound upon that a little bit because maybe some of these people are going to come from your alma mater, my alma mater, universities <laughs> that have traditionally trained turf grass professionals. What is your relationship with that as a pipeline? And, you know, obviously that's struggled, right? We saw a boom and a big increase, and now looks like these programs are maybe right-sizing themselves, at least at the resident ed 
but I can t- I wonder about the 10 week schools and you know the UMass winter school the Rutgers winter school I wonder do we need more flexibility in formal training or is that not one of the things that's lacking I certainly think it is it's breaking from what we're used to and and it's very difficult I think because we've been so I guess you could say cultured to think you have to have a two-year, four-year degree to be successful. I'm finding that a lot of these short courses that are offered in other industries are really what's necessary because they're going to learn most of it on the job. You know, So I personally think that if, an, if a university can be a little bit more flexible, like you said, and can accommodate people that have to be on the job and can't leave you know, home and go to a university system, maybe can do some online training or short courses, I think they'd be just as successful as that person with a two-year, four-year degree because they've got more exposure on the job. That's exactly right. I mean, I I think we have to have a more flexible approach. The Great Lakes Turf School is one example of online training. Of course, Penn State's got the World Campus. Wisconsin has a more flexible program now. So these things are trying to meet people. But let's talk about the culture that they're going into. It sounds like part of what you're doing is actually working with golf courses to help them understand what's a better way to build a workforce, not necessarily just working with labor people on the policy and the other end, like, okay, how do we create pipelines? But then people show up or need to know about these jobs. Do you see we have to make adaptations to the work environment for building our workforce? Absolutely. I mean, I talking with a superintendent this morning, that essentially is saying that he needs to build a morning shift and an afternoon shift because he's so busy during the middle of the day. And so just accommodating to that style of worker and then accommodating their programs to meet that workforce, I mean, that's workforce development in a nutshell right there. Um, You're matching business needs with your talent needs. So again, as an industry, how we train our people, how how we engage them into the organization, how we develop them internally is super critical. And if superintendents and sports turf managers just don't have the time, right. you know, to synthesize this stuff and come up with it. And, you know, it's kind of where I feel like I'm finding that little niche. So one of the challenges in the trenches or the nuts and bolts of this is what I mentioned earlier. Somebody's got to get up and cut the grass before people play golf. You can't fix the weather, right? There's only so much of these things you can change. You're basically working outside at certain hours of the day that, you know, some people find difficult. When someone looks at that kind of job and says it pays $12 an hour, let's say, and they look at a restaurant or a hardware store that's paying 16 or $17 an hour, how do we as an industry consider how to deal with what we might be facing uh, from a compensation standpoint? Now, I know your survey say compensation is not always the biggest deciding factor, but I'm putting you on the spot for compensation right now. Yeah. First off, infrastructurally, the clubs are going to have to consider right now in the state we're at, 12 bucks an hour is just not doing it. So I think that's something clubs are going to have to face. They're not going to be able to kick the can down the road any longer. They've already kicked it long enough. You got to pay people what they're worth. And especially in an industry that's, you know, there's not a lot of people that are aware of the club industry. They're going to have to pay higher to be competitive against the Walmarts the McDonald's of the world, right? So there is truth to that. I mean, I can't sit here and say that that's not a factor. But I also think a program that I see effective is like a reentry program for people that would fit for those $12 an hour wages, but a club's not going to entertain that because they get, you know, a little bit uptight thinking, oh my God, we're going to have felons running our golf course. 
Mm-hmm. That's not the case. You might only need two or three of them to fit a niche role. So I think clubs are going to have to really reconsider programs like that for the wages that they offer. I mean, that's just being realistic. So they might have to be not looser with their expectations, but, you know, those reentry programs are fantastic um, because they have job coaches and they have government support to help businesses I guess you could say accommodate people with those backgrounds. Let's talk about those aspects of the work environment other than compensation, Tyler, because I know, you know, you've promoted this to help superintendents create a better work environment. What are the other things other than compensation and how do they rank uh, relative to the kind of people who people want to work for and the kind of environment that people want to work in? Yeah, I mean, I think consistently I hear from job seekers They want to see growth and advancement, and that doesn't mean every 60 days they're getting a pay increase. But I think people want to see a vision six months, a year, year and a half, two years later. So I think you have to have some sort of a structured outline to tell people, hey, if you start at this wage, you're going to get this level of training. And if you meet these performance metrics, you're going to get this sort of pay increase. I mean, people don't like to have the carrot kind of dangled in front of them. So you've got to give them that sort of vision. I'll be honest with you, we hear a lot of people talk about flexibility in being able to accommodate a kid's soccer game or daycare situation, and sometimes just being flexible and open that, hey, we can accommodate that sort of schedule. Um, Some people have to commute, and they have to take public transportation. I mean, so being accommodating that a person might not be able to be there till 7 a.m., you know, those little things are, are extremely important. I would tell you I hear oftentimes from job seekers that they just didn't feel heard. You know, so just the communication levels is sometimes what they're looking for. And there's transparent communication about the job expectations and just being, I guess you could say, a good mentor. And it seems like it's very pie in the sky, but honestly, it's what I hear consistently from job seekers. Those two things, growth and advancement and transparent communication about the expectations. Yeah, I think everybody thrives in an environment with other people when there's good feedback, constructive feedback. People feel free to have those conversations with each other. I can tell you, now I'm really old, Tyler. I can tell you that is not the culture that most of us grew up in, at least that I didn't grow up in, in managing golf courses. It was more of a sort of regimented approach to doing it. But I want to sort of move on from this a little bit and talk about how possible adaptations that have happened with COVID could be helping with getting new folks into the workforce. It looks like surveys are saying people want to change careers. It looks like people are saying, you know, I want to get back out and work in person. I hear people saying, I got to get out from under this bad manager, right? Or, you know, I'm really burnt out in this job right now. I I wonder if you're getting the sense that COVID is doing these things and that provides us opportunities. And then I'm going to bug you for, you know, exactly what we should be doing. I think that's apparent for the mid-level management, which is hard, I think, for superintendents to look at somebody that's got a four-year degree in finance. You know, they might have four to six years or more of professional experience and say, where can I fit them in here? Because I can't bring them in paying them 20 to $30 an hour. And, and sometimes a superintendent's like, it's not worth my time. You know, or a, a sports turf manager say, I don't know what I could offer them. But honestly, it's just offering them then that new space and that new opportunity. I have not heard somebody tell me, you know, that had those kind of qualifications to say, uh, this is an interest because it's too low pay. Again, I think they come back to is, 
I can take taking a job at 15 to 17 dollars an hour or 13 to 15, but what's the opportunity for growth and development? Can I get an education? Would the organization pay for some training that I can handle spraying pesticides, fixing irrigation, some of those more intricate type positions? So I do think there is a shift in that type of workforce. I think the seasonal labor aspect is always going to be a challenge. Again, you look at the time of the season now, high school kids go back to school or college kids go back to school, and a club can maybe only afford two to three months for seasonal work. It's kind of hard to advocate for that to a large volume of people when they can go work at any business down the street for full time and get full benefits, right? So I think structurally clubs are going to take on more full-time employees and maybe those employees aren't just designated for the grounds. They might become bussers or dishwashers in the wintertime event setup. So I do think clubs, you know, are going to have to look at their workforce kind of more as one entire unit and not just in the solid approach. That's such a fascinating way to look at the workforce, but it also sounds like one of the best practices that I hear you espousing implicitly in a lot of this is that people who want to hire a good workforce are going to have to invest in that workforce, not just in recruiting and retaining them, but invest maybe in their education, invest in maybe another person to help when they have childcare or they have other things, having that flexibility are those characteristics. How much success have you had with some of your clients, you know, listening to you and beginning to invest in this stuff and and maybe even starting to see results? Well, it's kind of a hybrid of everything. So what I would tell you is success, yeah. I mean, placement-wise, we're we're able to find people for seasonal entry-level type work, you know, all the way up to management, whether it's assistant or even the executive search for superintendents. But I do think that a lot of these clubs realize for them to retain good people, whether they're on their staff now or they're having to recruit those people in, they're going to have to put some sort of investment. And that doesn't mean they're going to spend 40000 to $100,000 on education. It might only be $2,500 or to go to a local chapter association event, a regional training with Toro or John Deere. I mean, they all, all those different, you know, components offer training, short courses, whether it's on, you know, UMass, you suggested Rutgers has a great program as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's pivotal. I mean, if they're not thinking that that's going to be a component moving forward and they're not budgeting for that, I think they're going to continue to struggle year to year because if I'm an employee, I basically, it's a buyer's market. I can go anywhere right now, even the local restaurants, Cracker Barrel, yeah. I mean, they offer tuition reimbursement. Right. All of them have signs on the road saying, you know, start working and get in our management trainer program. So there's absolutely no question that having that pathway is going to be critical, particularly for the workforce that's doing a lot of the labor work. And that's where we spend most of our conversations. And I want to get back to that. But at the same time, you and I I know. Uh, You've been in this business a little bit. I've been in this business a little bit. And there's a lot of people who've done what you've done as far as what they call maybe workforce development. Maybe you'd call them headhunters. And they're out there. And, you know, you see them in big jobs and and then, you know, there was this little kerfuffle a little while ago to where, where the USGA was going to get involved in helping their clubs hire high-end guys. So, you know, we're talking about this, uh, you know, this uh, one end of the business, very different than the other end I think we've been chatting a lot about. You know, I wonder what you, as somebody trying to build a team, thinks about when you go for, uh, 
you know, for lack of a better term, you know, like an A-Rod or, oh, I hate that. And, 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 or, or, you know, something where he's spending a lot of money, you know, for one guy. Uh, and it, you know, it's a big job. They should get a lot of money, but I wonder if you couldn't talk a little bit about the head hunting part and the searching for the top guy business of this industry. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's super competitive, right? So you would think it's so niche and there's a couple key players in the game um, and they all do a great job. You know, for me personally, I think if I'm a superintendent, um, unless you have a direct relationship with the club, I think it's great to have some representation. And I'm not going to just say Tyler Bloom. I mean, listen, I'd love to get every big job that's out there, but (laughs) there's some other really, really strong entities But if I'm a superintendent, I want somebody that has a little bit of technical background. Maybe some of them are more experts than others. I think it's to your advantage to have someone like that that can help get across your point to a lot of these board members because I'll be honest with you, one of the first superintendent jobs that I did, I was blown away at the lack of, I guess you could say, foundational knowledge about what a superintendent does and sort of what they're up against, whether it's staffing, infrastructure. So I think having somebody that can be a proponent and ambassador for the superintendent job is only in the best interest for everybody. So you wouldn't have had a real objection with what the USGA was doing as far as making sure the USGA member clubs were hiring a, a superintendent that fit their needs. I can't speak upon the USGA. I think that's a rabbit hole. I'm not, it's a fire I'm not willing to get into. I think everybody's got their opinions, but I I think that if their role in it was to provide technical advisory for a club, I think that's a win-win, but there are circumstances where I know clubs just say, listen, we don't want to go through a dog and pony show. Give us the top five. Okay. Let's be done with it. Right. So I think there's two different kind of models there, but again, regardless, it's in the best interest, I think, as a profession to have some sort of technical advisory versus just a bunch of buddies who say, oh, I played this course last week. Let's pull the guy from there. That doesn't always necessarily translate that culturally it's going to be a good fit. Exactly right. I know some people might not want to hear that. Well, but. listen, this is why it's called Frankly Speaking, Tyler. And we're ha- I'm happy to have you here to talk candidly <laughs> about this because this tends to be a bit of a, a sticky wicket, to say it kindly, in our industry about, you know, the big jobs and who gets them and, you know, what are they doing? It's we're as an industry, a lot of us are very competitive for the best jobs, want those best jobs. And you know, when the USGA came on the scene, there was this, oh, well, what about this? What about that? And I think what you described is a fair representation. It really isn't in the best interest of the club to just talk to somebody like the USGA and say, oh, just give us the five best superintendents and we'll hire them. Or maybe just give us those and we'll we'll figure out the culture stuff. You wonder if it's just abdicating their responsibility. Now, nobody wants to hear this, and it probably isn't a club manager anywhere that listens to this program. So we can talk freely, I think, when we say, listen, there's just not a way a general manager, even if the members want to do that, a general manager should say, listen, (laughs) we should get somebody in to help us with this. We shouldn't just abdicate it. We should review it and put our time in. And that's probably the kind of culture that you want to work in, right, Tyler? I mean, that's the kind of culture you're trying to set up 
where the club feels like they're engaged in developing the workforce that services them. No question. I mean, you want them to be active participants in that process, you know, because they know the nuts and bolts. They know the hot topics. You know, they were getting phone calls from their peers complaining about the ball washer on hole seven. This is the seventh consecutive day. It's not been filled or, um, you know, bunker maintenance practices aren't what we're looking for. So you have to have some of that inner dialogue to build that sort of cultural perspective on the job. But, you know, from a technical point, you know, listen, whether it's using, uh, you know, resources from a local chapter, you know, a specific headhunter or a firm, I think there's a lot of advantages and pros to that versus just letting it up to somebody that's in a power position at a club making that decision. It could really be catastrophic for a club, you know, if they don't have some sort of technical advisory. So, listen, as you know, full disclosure, I contacted you a while back. We're in the process at Cornell of doing some big hires for our golf course and research program over the next several months. And so I I became a little bit more familiar with your services in our conversation. I got to watch you work with my friends at uh, Central Park, Gary Gentilucci and the group down there. Uh, So you tweeted about a visit down there. It's uh, once you open your eyes to Central Park, you can't take your eyes off that place. It's just really a marvel. Oh, it's incredible. But uh, I want to ask you, because I've gotten a little bit of this experience. Take a minute and talk to me about, let's say I was a golf course superintendent. I listened to this fine podcast and and that guy sounds pretty good. I think I want to talk with him. How do you like to lay out your services to people who want to engage with you? And certainly, you know, you have a lot of different ones, but let's just talk about somebody who's clueless, this piqued their interest, and you want to, you know, start a relationship with them to help their club be better at hiring. You're correct. There's a couple different ways, but I think first, it's really having a conversation on what are your goals. I mean, if your goals are to just get bodies in the door, I'm not quite sure my service is the best utilized. And I can give you sort of that consulting advice to pay more money. I mean, sometimes it is that. I can give some advice on here are some different networks that I would post positions to, what I've found successful. But oftentimes I find clubs are engaging with me for that apprenticeship model because it does work both ways. You're, you're developing people internally, but it's a tool that you can use as a club to help you recruit. And sometimes it is just for general labor. But we've also found very skilled people with landscaping backgrounds or let's call it trades, plumbers, plumber apprentice, an auto mechanic, things of that nature that sometimes it's just weird how it works out, but you you attract those kind of people because they see that job is more about career development. So oftentimes clubs engage me with that component and and the byproduct of it is people. So, you know, it's kind of funny how it works, but it does help support entry level type placement as well. But I'll tell you, I mean, there's situations where I'll get a call from a club to say, Hey, I need help with just setting up a hiring process. I've got nothing to start with. Can you give me a structured process that you use? So it could be something as simple as an automation tool. It could be an organizational chart, questions. So every situation is a little bit different in what the needs are. Um, I have gotten calls for equipment technician positions. I'm I'm hiring right now for a job in Chicago. Um, Assistant positions are obviously a hot topic everywhere. But honestly, I think that apprenticeship program is really kind of the foundation and everything builds from that. Because if there's no desire to develop people internally, I mean, I really can't help you. All right. So this is interesting because I can imagine some people saying, well, listen, I, you know, I tried and they don't show up to work or I, you know, I've tried this and and they don't do that. So I do hear, 
and more so in, during, you know, the pandemic. And I don't have to talk about the issues, the mental health issues that a lot of us are facing in and around this business, front of the house, back of the house. But they're regularly lamenting labor. Uh, I don't meet a superintendent who's not telling me about the creative ways they're having to try to get stuff done. Can't get the retired guys even, even like they used to. What is your, you know, elevator answer when people start lamenting they can't get help? I mean, you're not going to spend 10 minutes explaining them your services. What's the elevator answer for, you know, what would you tell somebody? Well, have you doing this? Have you looked at that? You know, you talk to your FFA. Is there an elevator answer when people start lamenting this stuff, which I know you hear they do? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is I create an ecosystem of talent. And I also help you structureize systems to attract qualified people. What you're saying, the lamenting, is you're always going to have people problems. It's never going to change. You're never going to have 100% success. So how do you develop, you know, a little bit of self-awareness? is probably part of that puzzle as well. And how can I help you um, maybe become a better manager, a better leader, and think think about things from an objective viewpoint. But again, I would come back to, I help create talent ecosystems and different networks for you to pull from. Tyler, it is so great chatting with you. Really appreciate you taking the time. This is a really thorough conversation on something that as a, you know, an agronomist and an academic in a natural science field, you know, I, I'm always looking for data on these things, and I'm always surprised how uh, little data there is with some of these things about, you know, where we could be drawing from and how we could be growing. So for now, I'm just really thrilled that there's more people like you coming in with a progressive attitude, and I, I, I hope there's a bright future ahead for building good teams to take care of these golf courses. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think superintendents do a great job in general. They, they need more time and they need more support. I mean, their clubs need to help support them right now. They only have so much time in a day and so much bandwidth. And clubs as a whole really need to think about talent strategy much differently than they have, uh, you know, in previous years. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate it. Hopefully get to talk again. Uh, thanks a lot, Frank. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses, assist with the control of insects and diseases, as well as increases in stress tolerance. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the USA and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. I'm so happy to be joined by Lee Butler of North Carolina State University, but more importantly, the official Southeast diagnostician of the Frankly Speaking podcast. Chatting with Lee always reminds me of looking for innovative solutions to our needs. And one of those innovations is the Dryject Sand Ejection Service that gets the most top dressing sand into the profile. Dryject services aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. This keeps the water flowing through and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service. Now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject services representative or visit dryject.com.
Welcome back. As always, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. I know that you're pretty busy down there, um, and we got a lot to cover above and below ground that happened, is still happening, and what we need to prepare for. So I've anointed you, if you're willing to be anointed this, the official Southeastern Diagnostician of the Frankly Speaking podcast. Can I can I anoint you? <laughs> That's awesome. All right. All right. We're going to get shirts and hats. So let, let's, start, <laughs> let's start with what looked like a pretty stressful year below ground. And one that stands out that seems odd to me, Lee, is the Pythium root dysfunction. You did a beautiful job with that tweet about, yeah, just because you got long roots doesn't mean they're functioning. And look what happens here. Pythium root dysfunction, as I understand it, is something that happens under dry conditions. Did you have dry conditions throughout that part of the country, or am I completely confused about this disease? So it's, it's not necessarily caused by dry conditions as far as the infection process goes, but as far as symptom expression goes, yes. You know, in the grand scheme of things, pythium root dysfunction is actually a pretty weak little pathogen, yeah, yeah. but it does just enough damage to the root hairs. That's why the sand won't hold, and that's why we always show those photos of long roots, but the sand doesn't adhere. So anytime you have drought stress or you're getting low on fertility, then those symptoms will flash. So infection usually occurs in spring and fall, but we'll see symptoms even show themselves in the winter. So if you get like a, you know, a little bit warmer day and the wind is howling, things dry down, you'll have these patches show up in January, February, you know, when people are not even thinking about disease. It doesn't mean that the pathogen is active. It's just that the symptoms are expressing themselves. But typically we see them once we get into late spring, early summer, uh, when you get those the, the stresses. So that cuts across cool and warm season turf? It's definitely in cool season turf. Bruce Martin, who's now retired from Clemson, has alluded to the fact that he thinks it may occur in, in Bermuda. Hmm. To my knowledge, nobody has shown that yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if that eventually does become a thing. I have to say, I look askance at people recommending preventative pythium control in spring and fall when I often thought pythium was a problem that I would have more in the summer, or pythium root rot I typically associate with very wet conditions, right? That's the other side of the coin, right? The sort of anoxic conditions that lead to the root rot part of this thing. Have we gotten to the point, Lee, where we need to apply preventatively for these root pythium problems? That's a very good point. So there are a lot of species that cause pythium root rot and pythium root dysfunction. It's more than just pythium volutum for pythium root dysfunction. Uh, we actually have a master student right now, Hallie Hampy, who has been working on this very thing where she's been pulling samples monthly for several years now, and she's been documenting. Uh, she's actually going to be presenting this at the crop science meeting if you go uh, in Salt Lake. Great. But she's showing how the variability in the species throughout the season, right? Uh, and there are a lot of species that are associated with it. Most people do associate, especially with pythium root rot, they associate hot, wet. But that's not always the case. It can be cool, wet, right? Mm-hmm. All these different pythium species have different optimal temperature ranges. We, we see it in Bermuda grass. We see it in ben- We see it in all the grasses, right? And we see it at different times of the year. And it's just one of those things where you got to kind of learn what you have at your site. It's probably not year-round at every site. Don't be surprised if you do see some root rot show up at an odd time of the year, uh, for sure. Because I, I do run into that as a diagnostician, you know, especially when you diagnose it outside of what people assume is always hot and wet times. You know, they think we're crazy. And then they change their program and they get a response. 
Uh, and they're like, oh, oh you know, I guess you were right. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it is it is very interesting when it comes to those. Okay, so Pythium, uh, not a fungus. Pythium and oomycete, which means unlike when you spray for dollar spot and you control brown patch sometimes, there are very few things that you treat normally that's going to have a big effect on these Pythium species. Am I correct in, in saying that? You're 100% correct. Okay, so with that as a backdrop, we spray a lot for Pythium and don't think much about about it because we spray phosphites all the time. Correct. So I'm a little bit curious. Do we think using phosphites all the time is is potentially making this thing goofier because of all the species? It may be impacting and playing around with the ecology. I know this is a harebrained question from a fast-talking <laughs> Yankee, as my, my buddy Bert McCarty would tell me I am. Uh, what do you think about this business that we do spray a lot of phosphites? It's not a fungi. I got to spray things direct at these oomycetes. What about this phosphite thing? So uh, th- that's a very good point. Once again, I don't think that that it's making things goofy. So I'm, I'm actually at a turf meeting right now with Simplot, and Dr. Kearns just presented, and he was talking about this very thing, and he was talking about how all these different species call in the Pythium complex, and how it's actually a good thing from a resistance management standpoint because mm-hmm. the target's constantly changing throughout the year. It would be a, a more of a worst-case scenario if it was only one species of Pythium throughout the entire year and we kept hitting it with these products over and over and over. Of course, we would be putting pressure on that population, and you could be potentially selecting out certain members of that population, right? But the fact that the species change over time, that works in our favor uh, tremendously. So it's, it's actually a good thing that there are multiple species throughout the growing season. Excellent. So are you guys uh, at the point now where you feel like if you've had a history of pythium root issues that you need to be treating uh, preventatively throughout the season? Yeah, so preventative is the way to go. And, and that holds true for pretty much all of our diseases. You know, when, once you get behind the eight ball curatively, it is really tough. That's right. These fungicides are really, really good. But once the damage is done, it's done. Mm-hmm. And you can apply these products and, and they will suppress the fungus or the uh, water mold or oomycete or cemento pile, whatever you want to call pythium. Right, you can suppress those organisms, but then after that, it's about growth potential. Is the host growing? Mm-hmm. Can it recover? Can it push out that damaged tissue with nice, you know, clean, healthy material? Yeah. So the reason I'm penetrating about this pythium thing is that is a new thing for I think a lot of us to hear needing preventative control for. I agree with mm-hmm. you 100. percent You guys living in the soup down there and stressing the plants. Uh, Even warm season grasses get stressed in August and September, I've seen through my travels down there. I mean, the high light, the high heat, yeah, they love it. But I definitely think there's a stress period late August into September where those grasses sometimes run out of gas too. So that's mostly what I'm getting at here is that we're stressing these plants more. This is a different kind of problem that's coming up more frequently. And for those that don't think about it much, it probably is something they need on their radar. So let's leave that at that and talk about some of the other below ground stuff that you've been dealing with. And I know in the spring we talked about the take all patch, right? That's becoming a bigger and bigger issue uh, for you guys down there. Isn't this the time of year where you do recommend preventative controls? Where's the trigger for the fall applications for some of the warm season diseases that happen? in the spring? The timing for take-all root rot on, on Bermuda grass, we've kind of passed the initiation of it. So 
that would have started up kind of uh, early August is what we've seen. So you're, you're kind of looking at your August, September, and then by then you're kind of rolling into you need to also cover spring dead spot, which mm-hmm. is a below ground issue. And I'm strictly talking, you know, Bermuda grass right. uh, putting services. Right. right. Those two do overlap, and there are products that will cover both, which is nice. You can kind of tailor your program to cover that. Oh, nice. Backing up just a little bit, you think about Mini Ring, mm-hmm. uh, which has been extremely problematic in our region this year. We've seen a tremendous amount of it, very severe cases, which, you know, appears to be tied to fertility based on work from Clemson, right? Mm-hmm. So th- those applications tend to be a little bit before that, even. And, and that's one thing, you know, especially in our region. Uh, it all started in basically around 2010, 2011, more or less, when we started having this mass conversion from bent grass to Bermuda grass mm-hmm. in the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. You know, early on, you were thinking, well, you know, Bermuda grass won't need fungicides in the summer. That's when it's its happiest, right? But we've come to learn that's when you actually need to be getting your fungicide applications out to set it up for fall and get it into the winter to be as healthy as possible. When, when you talk about the big diseases like mini ring, take all root rot, spring dead spot, uh, and even pythium root rot. We see a fair amount of pythium root rot on these grasses as well. Well, and I'd be remiss. Thank you for saying that, Lee. It has been a big transition. And what also happens is some of these uh, fairway Bermudas get leaf spot. So foliar problems have not taken second fiddle. I mean, you guys live in the soup uh, with high humidity from week upon week, month into month. And if a hurricane comes through... And we'll get the army worm, right? The hurricane came through and dumped army worm on the eastern United States. Uh, so, 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 talk a little bit about the foliar issues as well, and 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 how they might be becoming higher incidence as well. You talking about for Bermuda specifically? Yeah, yeah. Or or dollar spot on bent grass. I mean, you got bent grass down there too. We do. We do have. A, we still have a lot of bent grass on putting surfaces. So foliar wise, you know, aside from dollar spot, which we understand that very well, it's been beat to death on bent grass. In Bermuda grass, leaf spot kind of comes and goes. Bipolaris leaf spot, we do see that, you know, here and there. The good news is it's pretty easy to control, even on the curative side. Mm-hmm. So I don't see too many people get too worried about that, honestly. Uh, even pythium blight, which is foliar. We've been educating our folks in this area. Anytime we get into this overcast period where you may have a prolonged wet period, hurricanes and tropical systems usually set the stage for these things. Anytime you see that in the forecast, just go ahead and spray preventatively for both, right? Just go ahead and cover both of those bases, easy peasy. The products that are out there, there are many to choose from. They work very well. Yeah. That's a good one. And the other one that in Bermuda that, that catches people sometimes is, is cream leaf light. Hmm. Thankfully, it's very cosmetic. You know, it's not going to wipe you out or have you updating your resume, so to speak. <laughs> so, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the foliar things on bent and Bermuda are pretty easy to control because we're able to put that fungicide right on target. These soil-borne issues, they're yeah. the ones that are a pain in the butt. And it has pretty much everything to do with getting that fungicide on target and being able to, to get it down to where it needs to be. That's correct. That's the big challenge, and I know you guys have been looking into that. I'm not going to let you go without a couple of other uh, alerts here that are outside the bent Bermuda world, but gray leaf spot, particularly yep. if a lot of people have turf-type tall fescue roughs up and down the eastern seaboard, where, again, hurricanes bring, as well as army worms, they bring gray leaf spot. What have you seen, and how is it starting to shape up as a gray leaf spot year? So this year, uh, compared to the ones in the past, I would say it's probably like average. I haven't seen anything that's been devastated with a gray leaf spot in our area uh, like we have before. Two or three years ago, where the army worms in combination with the gray leaf spot really caused havoc, especially on you know, young seedling tall fescue, 
because even in our research trials this year for Grey Leaf Spot, it, it's there, but it's not as bad as I've seen in the past. The good news is there are products that are working, multiple products. So there, there are tools out there for folks to use to manage that. You know, for us down here, it's mostly the landscape market. They're managing tall fescue lawns. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are probably the most concerned about it. Uh, we don't see as much overseas. You know, as we used to, let's say, back in the 90s and early 2000s. Right. People have gone away from that. They're doing the pigments and the paints and all that good stuff for the ryegrass part. Right. Okay. So what are the first couple of calls like that you get from people who have been ravaged by armyworm? Did you get any? (laughs) (laughs) I keep talking to Buckley about, okay, what do people actually say? It's like, okay, my lawn's not there. It was there last yeah. night. It's not there today. Yeah, so I was in a meeting with Rick Brandenburg the other day, you know, our entomologist here at NC State. Yeah. And number one, I said, are the army worms at your front door with pitchforks and torches <laughs> ready to kill you? And number two, of all the pests in turf, fungal, bacterial, whatever you want to call it, this has to be number one as far as the shock factor, right? right. Because <laughs> just completely wiping it out. And, th- and there has been a lot of that in our area, just like many other parts of the country. When I see that, because they do come to me a lot because folks think that it may be a disease, uh, and I just connect them with, um, you know, Dr. Rick Brandenburg and Dr. Terry Billison here at NC State, and, and they, you know, I kind of hand it off to them, so to speak, and let, the, and let the entomologists do their thing, but it is a major deal. So last one, then I'll let you go. How's it shaping up prepping for the winter for you guys? Are you getting recovery in the areas that you needed? Have the growing conditions improved enough where, you know, if you're pretty good, you get a good couple of six weeks of cooling off and drying out, you should be good for next spring. How's it starting to shape up? I would say it's shaping up pretty good. I mean, we always talk about average or normal. I have no clue what that is. I'm not sure anybody does, but I would say it's been more or less normal. June and July were really good for bent grass for our guys, and then August was the house of pain, as Pat O'Brien used to say with the USDA. It's hit or miss, and it's very localized. I mean, it really is. It all depends on where the weather events have been occurring. Like in western North Carolina, they've been getting a lot of those really heavy rain events, severe flooding from the tropical systems that hit Louisiana and then went right up the Appalachian Mountains. Whereas here in the Piedmont and Coastal Plains, it's, it's been a little bit of a different story. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, all the folks, I haven't seen any complete disaster stories or anything like that. I think most people are okay with where they're at and things are progressing normally. Based on what I've seen, everything will be just fine. Another indicator of that is the amount of samples we get. Yeah. Usually you can kind of watch the sample numbers, and that kind of indicates just how bad it's been. And we're trending to be a kind of a below normal year for, for sample load. So that's a good thing for turf grass managers. And I can say I've talked to diagnosticians like my pal Rich Buckley, who will describe this year as very depressing for them. <laughs> it's right. like what, what makes you guys happy makes everybody else sad uh, as the samples are coming in uh, to to pay for the samples and keep the lights on. So listen, Lee, thanks for taking the time to join me. Really appreciate it. Always appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Big thanks to both Tyler Bloom and Lee Butler. Really appreciate their time joining us from Frankly Speaking. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. 
Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.